So this ark, also known as Aron HaKodesh, the holy ark, Aron HaEidut, the ark of the covenant, and Aron ha, uh, Aron, the ark of testimony, and Aron HaBrit, the ark of the covenant, all names for it. Um, today, in our synagogue, we have what we call an Aron HaKodesh, a holy ark. The holy ark is <laughs> not really the same, but it symbolizes the ark in the temple, just as in the temple the ark stood all the way in the front, or it kind of the back, you could call it, coming in, of the temple. So too, in the very, very front of our synagogues, we have a big box um, that we call the Holy Ark, where we place our Torahs. And so we often, because we use the term Aron Kodesh, or Holy Ark, for the um, box or closet in the front of the temple where the Torahs are placed, um, we therefore tend to use another term, like Aron Eidot, Aron Abrit, to refer to the Ark in the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, to refer to the Ark that actually stood in the temple. So this Ark was built by the people constructing the temple, leading the construction. The Torah is going to tell us in a couple chapters forward is going to be a fellow called Betzalel. Betzalel is going to lead the construction. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he's going to build it exactly as instructed by Moses. Now, the ark, we're told, is going, it's a box made that its width, its length is two and a half cubits, or amot in Hebrew. A cubit is the length going from here to here. Now, because there's a lot of Hebrew measurements in the Torah, and they're all, um, just like our measurements today, um, length measurements, liquid measurements, um, weight measurements are all interconnected. Um, and we should one day do a class on Torah, Jewish measurements. Um, they're all interconnected, since they're all interconnected, um, so we have a pretty good idea of how large they were, the biblical measurements, and we have things we can measure them against. Um, and while there's some debate on the exact size, but the, um, the, it's widely believed that the Amma, the cubit, was 48 centimeters or about a foot and a half, about 18 inches. So this is two and a half amot, two and a half cubits. Two and a half cubits would be about, give or take, just a little over, um, uh, just under four feet wide, uh, long. And then um, its width, uh, the width of the arc was one and a half cubits, which would be a little over two feet, two and a bit feet. So um, we're talking about a um, we're talking about a um, kind of small box, three and a half feet by about two and a half feet. So a kind of small box, and um, it was a foot and a half. Uh, sorry, it was a cubit and a half high, so a little bit about two and a quarter feet high. So we're talking about kind of a little box, not a very big one, that sat in the um, that sat in the holy of holies. Now this the Talmud tells us that this box was actually not one box, but it was made of three boxes. The Torah tells us that it should be a wooden box made of shittim wood. Shittim wood is the wood that was used in the temple, was shittim wood. Um, the uh, Midrash tells us that the shittim was a type of cedar wood. Had they get cedar in the desert, they brought it back with them from Egypt. They were instructed to bring cedar wood with them from Egypt. According to the Midrash, it was cedar wood that had originally been brought from, because cedar doesn't really grow in Egypt either. It was cedar that had been brought from Israel by Jacob when they went down to Egypt, planted in Egypt, and then later brought with them from Egypt through the desert. 
So that's what it was made of, a type of cedar wood, and <coughs> it was made in this size. And the Torah says coated in gold. Now, normally gold coatings are very, very thin, right? Because gold can be made extremely, extremely thin uh, to a fraction of an inch. Uh, but over here, the Talmud tells us they actually made three boxes. There was a gold, a solid gold box, then a wooden box that fit perfectly snugly within the solid gold box, and then a, another solid gold box that sat inside the wood box. So there were actually three boxes over here. So you actually had quite a thick, um, quite a thick box of wood. Uh, the three boxes together, the thickness of the wall was a, um, a the thickness of a hand of a of a hand breadth. It's called, um, which is about three inches. So the walls, the the thickness of the box is about three inches. So we're talking about quite a thick box. Um, inch of wood, but then are two inches on either side of gold. So this is not just a drop of gold, but this is quite a significant amount of gold. Yes? How did they carry this? It must have weighed a ton. Very good question. We're going to get to that. So, there was a gold rim around the top also, so that it covered the wood at the top. You couldn't see it at all. And then on top of that, they had to have a, they had a solid gold cover. The cover itself was also a handbreadth thick, so three inches thick, the cover. So a thick, heavy cover of gold. And now they had to fashion out of a single piece of gold. And this is a skill that we don't know how to do anymore, but we know they did it in the temple. Where today, if you make something out of gold or out of any metal, you make a, um, you make a mold and you pour it into a mold. Here they didn't do that. They took solid gold pure gold, that is, not with any alloys, pure gold, and they banged it into a specific shape. They're able to bang it into shape. It was a very unique skill. And so they, were, they made, in this cover, which is about little over three feet, uh, sorry, a little over three feet by a little over, um, sorry, a little over two feet by a little under four feet, um, square cover. Um, and on top of it sat these two figures, um, two figures with wings, and the wings both bent over. The, they, the two figures came up from either end of this cover. The wings bent over and touched each other on the top to cover this top, and they were called the kruvim, or cherubs. And it, the cherubs represented our relationship with God, and this was all made of a single piece of gold, banged into shape. And so this cover sat on top of the ark, never came off the ark, sat there perfectly. So now this, was, this ark was, as Annette pointed out, very, very heavy. Um, on the side of the ark were rings, um, golden rings. And through those rings, they stuck these sticks. The sticks themselves were 12 cubits long or 15 um, feet long. So that, sorry, were 10 cubits long, 15 feet long. They had these long sticks on either side and that were stuck through. And they, put, they fashioned it in a way that the sticks were thin in the middle and wider on the sides. And the rings were made around them so you could never actually pull the sticks out of the ark. And the sticks remained with the ark forever. They were never taken out, these, these poles. And so this ark would then be carried by the Levites 
multiple Levites would stand, and they would hold these poles on either side in order to carry this ark, in order to carry this box. And this is what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. Yes, Robert? What you described is a large capacitor. Is there a report of anybody getting electrocuted? Why would they get electrocuted? Because that is... That what you described with the two plates of, of gold with um, basically wood in the middle is a very large capacitor. It, it stores an electrical charge. Interesting. If you touch the two electrical points, there is a story, some that. sort of story of a, someone dying touching the arc. I'm going to get to that. But, uh, but uh, interesting. In, in, very interesting point. I did not know that. Thank you. So um, now, unlike everything else in the temple, like the menorah or the golden table or the altars, um, they kept making new ones um, every time they needed to fix it. They lost it they, in you know through a war or whatever. They made new ones. And when Solomon built his temple, he made everything new. The only thing that they never made again was the ark. Moses or Bezalel under Moses' direction built the ark. It was never copied. They used the same ark that Moses had made, and that was used in the Book of Kings, it says, in Solomon's temple. Everything was new, except for the ark. They used the same old ark that they always had. They used that ark. No copy was ever made. So, yes, yes, multiple times. What went into the ark? And so, we are told in the, um, Torah tells us that, um, God tells Moses to put his tablets inside the two tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. And these, um, the Talmud actually gives us actual sizes of the tablets. Um, Unlike Michelangelo's famous sculpture of Moses in the tablets, um, he made two mistakes. Firstly, Moses doesn't have horns. And um, secondly, because in his sculpture, Moses has horns. And secondly, the tablets were not rounded on top. The way they're always described is they were cubes. They were cubes. The size of the tablets was one, they're very heavy. You can understand why Moses dropped The size of the tablets was one cubit in length by one cubit in length, which is a foot and a half by a foot and a half square and um, half a cubit or three quarters of a foot so 18 inches by 18 inches by 9 inches. Stone. So stone, two of them. Very, very heavy. And the Talmud goes through the calculations of how it fit perfectly snugly inside the, <coughs> excuse me, inside this box of the ox. That would have made the box a lot heavier when it had these two stone tablets were placed inside. And that's why it's called the Ark of Testimony because the testimony, in other words, the tablets written by God, with the Ten Commandments on them, were placed inside the Ark. Later in the Book of Kings, when Solomon builds a temple, it also mentions that the Ark of Moses has the tablet still inside. It says Solomon is almost 400 years later, uh, sorry, uh, over 400 years after Moses, and the tablets are still inside. Um, So, God also later, when Moses writes his Torah scroll, his first Torah scroll at the very end of the Torah, God tells Moses to put the Torah next to the testimony in the ark. So it's unclear um, from the Torah itself, and 
um, in the Talmud it's debated as to whether that meant that the original Torah went inside the ark next to the tablets or it sat next to the ark perhaps in its own little box. So that's debated, that's unclear. Um, and exactly how it goes through whether there would have been room inside the ark for the Torah as well or not. Talmud goes into the, um, the, the measurements of, uh, of that. So our tradition tells us that in addition to that, the broken tablets that Moses had broken, the first set that he broke, what did he do with the pieces? He put them also in the ark. Although some say that the broken tablets were put in a different ark made by Moses earlier, and we'll soon talk about the second ark. So, where did the ark go? So once the temple was built, the ark, this ark is placed in the innermost room of the temple. The inner room is the outer room where we said the menorah, the table with the bread and the altar is. There's a curtain. Behind that curtain is an inner room known as the Holy of Holies. And the ark is placed inside the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would enter this room only on Yom Kippur. Nobody would go into this room other than that. The ark sat in the very, very middle of this room known as the Holy of Holies. Now, the, in the book of Kings, when it speaks about how Solomon built the first temple, it tells us something very interesting. Solomon built this inner room he built it the size of 20 cubits by 20 cubits, which is about 30 feet by 30 feet in size. And um, he places the ark in the very, very middle of the room. And um, he places it um, he places it on top of a um, stone called the Evan Shatia, um, stone of foundation stone that sat in the Holy of Holies. Our sages say that this foundation stone is the stone from which God created the entire world. Exactly what that means, I'm not sure. But that's what they say. There was a stone sticking up in the Holy of Holies, sticking into the floor, up from the floor. And the ark was placed on this stone in the Holy of Holies, at the very center of the Holy of Holies. Now then it tells us that Solomon built his own Kruvim cherub. So we had these figures with wings. Um, Solomon built it uh, that set um, the, as part of the cover of the ark. Solomon then built his own giant Kruvim. The Kruvim on top of the ark together uh, took up the length of the ark, which was only two and a half cubits, a little under four feet. Solomon built two giant Kruvim, each one ten cubits in length, the wings were 10 cubits in length, and they, each one sat, stood on the side of the ark, and the wings went backwards to the ends of the um, Holy of Holies. So on either side of the ark was this big figure with wings sticking out that went all the way over to the wall. So kind of added to the Holy of Holies. Now the Talmud points out there's quite a... Um, there's a measurement problem here, which is that the size of the room was 20 cubits in size. The cherubs on either side had wings of 10 cubits in size. The altar, the ark, sorry, itself 
was two and a half cubits in size. There's no way that 22 and a half cubits can fit in a 20 cubit room. Right? So the, the Talmud says, explains the reason, the way that worked was the ark did not take up space. The ark did not take up any space. Although it was two and a half cubits in size, the ark did not actually take up any space. And commentaries already um, over a thousand, a thousand years ago already pointed out that this miracle of the ark not taking up space is quite a feat. We have a lot of miracles described in Scripture. Um, splitting the Red Sea, the ten plagues. Generally, these miracles suspend the laws of physics, the laws of nature. In other words, normally water flows, water goes down. For water to split breaks the laws of physics, right? Suspends the laws of physics. Normally water doesn't stand like that. You're making it stand the way it doesn't normally stand. However, something not taking up space doesn't just suspend the laws of physics, ignore them. It defies physics. It defies the laws of nature. Because it's not possible to have something there that doesn't take up space. It's not possible to even picture. So on the um, miracle scale, a miracle of something not taking up space is a whole different level miracle than a miracle of just splitting a sea. So this was quite a feat and considered the greatest miracle recorded in our history. Um, while perhaps not as famous as the splitting of the sea, which was in front of millions of people, this was kind of in the Holy of Holies, you didn't see it unless you walked in there and nobody went in there. But this was quite a feat where it didn't just suspend the laws of nature, but it actually defied the laws of nature. Now, in the Holy of Holies, next to the Ark was possibly the Torah. Also was Aaron's stick. Aaron had this stick that he had used for miracles, to make miracles within Egypt. Later, in the desert, at a certain point, Aaron's stick grows almonds and flowers. And so, God told Moses to place Aaron's stick next to the ark. It shall always be there for all generations. But the other thing that sat next to the stick, next to the ark, was a little jug of manna. God told Moses, take a little jug of manna, take a manna, put it in a jug, put it in next to the ark, so that you'll always have it for all future generations. They'll always know that there really was manna falling in the desert. So, parchment. Parchment. The first Torah, uh, yeah, parchment. So, so that's the art. That's the art. That's what was in it. That's what was next to it. When Moses first came down from Sinai um, with the tablets, Moses came down. Moses went up to, as you may recall, Moses. They, God said to take commands to the people. The people had enough after ten. They said, Moses, you go get the rest. You tell it to us. We don't want to hear it. Any, we don't want to hear any more directly. So Moses goes up the mountain, spends 40 days and 40 nights there. The people meanwhile make a golden cuff. He comes down. He breaks the tablets. He goes back up to God. Asks God to forgive the people. Spends 40 days and 40 nights praying. 
God says, okay, go get me two new tablets and I will carve out the Ten Commandments again. Moses goes down, brings back up two, he carves himself two new tablets, brings them back up. Thank you. Brings them back up. He carves out two new tablets. He brings these tablets back up to, to the mountain. God carves out the Ten Commandments again. He comes down for the third time on Yom Kippur. God tells Moses now to build a temple. But it takes him about six months to build the temple. It doesn't happen automatically straight away. It takes about six months to build. Well, what, what did they do with the tablets during that time? So God told Moses, take the tablets, build an ark for them, and put them in an ark. So this ark was apparently the temporary ark until the permanent one was built. So it's not clear what happened to that first ark afterwards, but some say that the broken tablets actually remained in that first ark. So they actually kept the broken tablets in that first ark even after um, they built the final ark. Later, a number of times, both in the Torah and later in Tanakh, we describe how when they went to war, they would take an ark with them, an ark of testimony with them. Um, and so um, commentary suggests that it wasn't the ark that they would have taken out of the Holy of Holies, although we'll, we'll discover soon one time that they did, but rather it was an ark, the original ark that Moses had built temporarily where the broken tablets were kept, which presumably was kept somewhere in the temple, but it wasn't the ark that was taken with them to war for God's um, testimony to always be with, there with them. Rabbi, can you clarify? You said that the ark is one of those things that they took from antiquity from Solomon's temple, but now you're talking about multiple arcs. So mm-hmm. are you saying there's two old arcs? Yes. Okay. The original ark, the, the ark that had been the temporary ark that may have had the um, broken tablets in them, according to one view, was only there, was, we don't know what happened to it. So we can't say it's temporary, we just don't know. It was originally built to hold the Moses' tablets until the ark was built. It was a box that they put the tablets in until the transitional for six months until they built the temple. And the fight, the real ark. Until they built the, yeah, the the Mishkan, the the desert, the movable temple. Okay, so you're saying there was a temporary vehicle and then there was, yes. There was, that became the permanent vehicle used hundreds of years later. Yes. Perhaps. Uh, you're contradicting yourself. <laughs> it's a possibility. We don't have any definitive description of the second ark. There are those that suggest that the description of it being taken out to war was a second ark. And this second ark that was taken out to war, according to one view, may have had the broken tablets in it. The one with the, with the tablets that weren't broken. That was in the Holy of Holies that was built by Betzalel. That was, that was, that was in the right. temple. That's why we have all the details for it. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Now, when they traveled in the desert, they traveled for 40 years. Uh, they didn't travel all that much. There's, a, um, there's this sense that the Jews wandered, in the, the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. They didn't do all that much wandering because the Torah describes exactly where they went. Um, they actually ended up having 42 stops over 40 years. So that's not a lot of wandering. Um, most of those stops were in year one and year 40. So only, they only did, I think it was 19 stops 
for 20 stops over a 38-year period. So they didn't wander all that much. Uh, we know in one place they actually spent 19 years in one place, uh, in Kaddish. So, um, so they didn't do that much, but they did have to travel. And when they would travel, they would take apart, first they would take apart the Mishkan, they would take the whole thing apart, the building apart. Um, Aaron, sorry, the Kohenim would go in first. Before they take anything apart, the Kohenim would go in first and cover the ark and cover all the other utensils in the temple. And then the Levites would take apart the temple. Um, and then those that were in charge of carrying the, the, the hangings and the um, <coughs> curtains would carry the curtains. Those who were in charge of carrying the walls would carry the walls. And then the family of Kahat, which was uh, one of the three Levite families, in charge of carrying the unique the utensils would then carry the utensils. They each had rods with which to carry. Um, a number of Levites would stand on either side of the ark and <laughs> holding those sticks on either side, and they would march through the desert carrying this ark. It must, the Torah says it may never be put in a wagon. It should always be carried by hand on the shoulders. So you, should, you should always walk with it, never put it in a wagon. I don't know how many people carried it. I don't know. So then later... Sticks aren't that long. So there'd be so many 15, people. 15 feet. So, so later, when they crossed the Jordan River, um, Joshua this time, normally Levites would carry it. Here Joshua commands the Kohanim, Aaron's children and grandchildren to carry the ark. And this time the ark travels ahead of the people. And they, Joshua tells the Kohanim carrying the ark to walk into the Jordan River with the ark. And they do that. The moment their feet touch the water, the water splits. And the, the, way, the, the way it's described in the book of Joshua, water of course flows down the river. And at a certain point, the water just stopped and started climbing up as a wall. And everything else flowed down. So there was this very, very large wall. Um, according to the Bidrush, the wall ended up going during the time that they were crossing. It kept getting higher and higher and higher as the water kept flowing down. And it got to the height of 100 cubits or 150 feet. It just kept moving and going up. It was a miracle. Jordan River and the Red Sea, the same no, the Red Sea is an ocean. The Jordan River is a river that flows along the east coast, the east border, eastern border of Israel. So um, when we go to Israel, I don't know, if, depends on which tour you do, you may get to see the Jordan River. Some of them do, but I don't know if I'm doing it. And the Jordan River then connects with the Dead Sea, right? The Jordan River flows from the Kidaret, from the Sea of the Galilee, to the Dead Sea. So... Um, so the, uh, the Kohanim that stood with the ark in the, in, the Jordan, in the dry river bed as all the people crossed the river. Then, the Kohen, then they stepped out of the river. The moment they stepped out of the river, the water all came down and, um, and continued flowing as it always had. So that is how they um, crossed the Jordan River with the ark. When after crossing the Jordan River, they brought it to a place called Gilgal, which was just over the Jordan River where they camped that first night. And over there they set up the Mishka, the temporary temple that they had in the desert. And they placed the ark, of course, inside, as they always would. 
And it stood there for 14 years while they captured the land of Israel. Or what was then the land of Canaan, making it the land of Israel. After Israel was fully captured and divided, um, they then built a temple in a place called Shiloh. Shiloh is the very center of Israel. We are going to go there on our trip. Um, they built a temporary temple in Shiloh, and uh, a temple in Shiloh. They built it out of stone, and they put the ark in that temple in Shiloh. It was not the ultimate temple because they were told when you get to Israel, God will choose a place. It is not, God had not yet chosen a set place. So it was not the ultimate temple, but it stood for about 350 years, this temple in Shiloh. Yes, Stephen. Was the incident with the Jordan River the only time that the Kohanim carried it versus the Levites? Yes, that we know of, yes. Okay. Okay. Now, the beginning of the book of Samuel, we spoke about different books of scripture a couple weeks ago. The beginning of the book of Samuel, it tells us how the ark, the real one, this that is, was taken, there was a war with the Philistines. The Philistines was a nation that lived in the southwest of Israel, where modern-day Gaza is. And um, they constantly fought with Israel. And there was a big battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines won the battle. And the Israelites were afraid that the Philistines will overrun the country. And so they regrouped, were ready to fight the Philistines again. And they decided to, they did, to get extra good luck. They came to the temple in Shiloh, and they demanded that the, they take the ark with them to battle. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, go into the Holy of Holies, pull out the Ark of the Covenant to take it with them to battle. They weren't supposed to be doing that. Um, perhaps the nations around them would take their idols out to battle every time they fought, and so they, that's where they got the idea from. So they take the Ark out to battle. The sons of the high priest Eli, whose names are Hafni and Pinchas, who um, the book of Samuel doesn't have good things to say about them, um, they go, they, they carry the Ark, out to battle um, with the people. And they're holding the ark on the battlefield. Anyway, the, um, Israel goes to battle against the Philistines. You could imagine battles then were pretty ugly. Um, they had swords. They weren't even steel. I mean, they were iron. So, um, so it, was not, it was a pretty ugly battlefield. But they go to battle, and again, Israel is defeated before the Philistines. And the Philistines... While um, defeating Israel on the battlefield, see the Ark of the Covenant. And so they kill Chafni, Pinchas, and the Kohanim, guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And they grab the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back with them to their own, um, bring it back with them to Philistine lands. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant. It's a, just a box. It doesn't look like much. It has these cherubs on top. Um, but it's just a box. But they decide it must be the Jewish God. It must be Israel's God. And so, having captured Israel's God, they bring it to the temple of their own God, showing that, as they would often do when they captured another nation's gods, showing that their gods are more powerful. And they bring it to the temple of their own God, which was their God was called um, Dagan, and um, and they put in the temple. They come back the next morning, and their gods are all smashed on the floor. Yeah, they knew whose god was stronger. Not only that, all the Philistines in the town where it was at the time all have hemorrhoids. Have what? Hemorrhoids. 
And so the Philistines get the message and they are afraid. They realize it's because of this ark. So they send it off to the next Philistine town. The next Philistine town, the same thing happens. The idols get smashed and all the Philistines have hemorrhoids as well. Um, And so um, it travels around for seven months. Um, The book of Samuel tells us from Philistine town to Philistine town. It's uh, a hot potato. No one wants to touch it. Until finally the Philistines all get together, all their leaders, and they decide we're getting rid of this ark, um, causing us way too much trouble. So um, they, get, um, they get oxen, which is what they used back then to carry things. They didn't have a lot of horses back then. And they tie new oxen that had never been used before, and they put on a brand new wagon. They put the ark on it, and they set the, they set the ark with the oxen on the road to Bet Shemesh. Bet Shemesh is a town near Jerusalem, um, not far from what was then Philistine land. And so um, they also give a gift to God. They fashion out golden, they fashion out these mice out of gold. Why mice? They somehow believed that mice were connected to hemorrhoids. So um, they fashion out um, mice. Um, they fashion out these mice, um, golden mice that they put in the wagon as a gift to God together with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, anyway, the uh, farmers around Beit Shemesh, Israelite farmers, see this wagon coming with oxen being led, being led by oxen with nobody on it, nobody leading it. Um, and the Philistines were following from behind to see what would happen. They see it, they, um, they look inside the wagon, and they see there is the Ark of the Covenant. They pick up the Ark of the Covenant, they put it down on a stone in the field, they build a little structure around it, and um, now they've got the Ark right there in their fields. Um, the people in this place called um, Bet Shemesh, the farmers, um, are... Um, are fascinated by this ark that's kind of fallen into their midst and they don't treat it with respect. That's what it says in the book of Samuel. Um, the commentaries say they opened the cover of the ark to check out the Torah, the tablets inside and there's a plague and many of them die. So they don't want to touch this ark anymore. They sent the nearby town called Kiryat Ya'arib. They said the message, we have this ark, we need to get rid of it. And they send the ark, presumably in the wagon that it came in, um, over to the next Jewish town called Kiryat Ya'arib. Over there, a Jew by the name of Avinadav decides to take the ark into his home or into his property, where he builds a home for it. And it stays there and he treats it with great respect and dignity. Uh, presumably building something nice around it, and it stays in his home for 20 years. Meanwhile, during this period, the temple in Shiloh is discontinued. There's no ark. Um, perhaps it was destroyed in battle with the Philistines, according to one view. Um, the temple in Shiloh is discontinued. A new temple is built in a town called Nov, um, which is near Shiloh. A new temple is built, but this temple has no ark. Because the ark is now in Kiryat Ya'arim. Later, um, King Saul gets upset at the Kohanim who are serving in the temple in Nov, destroys that temple. They build a new one in a place called um, Givon, also right nearby in central Israel. Um, but again, there's no ark over there. 20 years later, now 
David is the new king of Israel. David has chosen Jerusalem as his capital. He's been instructed by the prophet Samuel that Jerusalem is the spot, the temple mount in Jerusalem, known as Mount Moriah, is the spot of God's permanent temple where he is to build the permanent temple. So David wants to build a temple in Jerusalem. He builds, God tells him not to build a permanent temple. So he builds at least a temporary temple until the permanent temple is built in Jerusalem. And for his new temple, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to bring it from the house of Avinadav, where it's been for 20 years. And he wants to bring it to Jerusalem. So, um, so David gets a, um, again, oxen and a wagon, the same way the Philistines had sent the Ark. And um, brings it and has a whole parade and a whole ceremony bringing it from Kirya Ya'arim, which is not far from Jerusalem, all the way to Jerusalem. David made a big, big mistake. The Torah says you're not allowed to put the, carry the ark in a wagon. You have to carry it on your shoulders. The Philistines didn't know that. They were Philistines. They're not supposed to expect it to do that. They did their best. But Jews should know better. David should have known better. He did not, they carried the ark, uh, so the, the ark was carried, um, was on this wagon with people going alongside it. Um, very excited, but it was being drawn by this wagon. At one point, as they are, uh, the, the ark is riding the distance from Kiryat Ya'arim to Jerusalem. At one point, the ark appears to be falling out of the wagon. Wagon is bumpy. The ark appears to be falling out. One of David's good friends, whose name was Uzzah, reaches out to straighten the ark. He touches the ark and he drops dead. David is, maybe that's what you were referring to earlier. I was going to say, um, actually, yes, because when you rub something, as if you carry it, develop a static charge. Okay. If you're pulling it on a wagon like that and develop a static charge and accumulate it, if you touch it... You'll drop dead, especially if you're connected to the ground. Maybe. So, um, interesting. Anyway, he drops dead. David is horrified of what happens and he's scared to continue. He says, I'm not bringing the ark any further. They stop right there and... Nearby is a home of, of where the, right where they are on the road. Nearby there's the home of a Jew by the name of Oved Edom Hagiti. And so they put the ark in the home of Oved Edom Hagiti. And so the ark spends three months in the home of this fellow called Oved Edom Hagiti, who does treat the ark with great respect. And... Um, the book of Samuel says that God, would, that God gave Oved Edom Hagiti great blessing. The Talmud says what was the great blessing? His wife and all of his daughters-in-law all got pregnant during this time. So that's great blessing. So um, there was great blessing in the home. What greater blessing is there than that? So um, David hears about it and he takes this as a sign. God... Um, the ark is not that dangerous after all. We're going to now bring the ark in Jerusalem. So after three months, this time David learned his lesson. He has Levites carrying the ark. And the Levites pick up, take the ark from the house of Ovid Edom Hagiti, um, which is not far. Again, it's not far. We're talking about a couple miles probably. Um, carrying it all the way to Jerusalem. And there's a big procession and a big parade 
and David is, and there's musicians playing, and David is dancing in front of the ark the entire way to the, um, the entire way to Jerusalem. And David teach, and we learn from this um, when we today donate Torahs. Uh, we have a whole procession of bringing the Torah into the synagogue. We had one about two years ago. Um, time to do another one. Um, we <laughs> donate, and you, we have a procession. We bring the ark to the synagogue, the Torah to the synagogue, and we walk uh, holding the Torah, and everyone dances. So it's based on how David brought the ark into Jerusalem. And, um, and, David, and then this ark was then placed in the temple that David, the temporary temple that David had built in Jerusalem. After David's death, David was told not to build the final temple because he was a man of war. His son will be a man of peace and he'll build the temple. Solomon builds a magnificent temple on Mount Moriah and he places the ark in the Holy of Holies on the stone called the Evan Shetia, the foundation stone in the Holy of Holies um, that he had built. And the ark is placed over there. And as we said earlier, while everything else in the temple, the menorah, the tables, everything else was all new, the ark was the same ark as it was the same ark that Moses had built. What? Yes? The descriptions you've, you've made of, of the ark are the ark, but you haven't given an example because you said you thought, or at least there's speculation that the, the second ark with broken pieces was what was brought out to war, but it appears that the only examples that we have recorded or the ark being brought out, captured by the Philistines. No, the story of the capture by the Philistines is without doubt the ark. It is mentioned that they took the ark out to war. We don't have a specific event uh, description of it happening, but there is such a mention in the Torah of the ark being brought out to war. Um, and that would then be a different ark, not that ark. Okay. Okay, so what happened to the ark? Yes? Sorry to backtrack. I just got hung up. With who made the mice? The Philistines. 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 And later, later I should mention, when David, when Solomon built the temple, the mice, was, they still had these mice. They put the mice in the Holy of Holies next to the ark to remember the Philistines' gift to God. Um, that was, they were the Philistines' gift to God, golden mice. Somehow mice signified hemorrhoids. Perhaps they believed that mice caused hemorrhoids. Or, or I think Rashi says that Hemorro- they thought hemorrhoids were these tiny mice inside of you. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, what happened to the ark? So the ark stood in Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple stood. Solomon's temple stood for over four hundred years. Um, the ark um, stood in this temple built by King Solomon. Um, the temple was destroyed about eight, uh, was built about 830 um, BCE, 831 BCE, and so it was destroyed about 420 BCE. So lived for over, uh, um, was there for over 400 years. What happened? There are two opinions mentioned in the Talmud. The more well-known opinion and the opinion that the mentioned more often is that when King Solomon built the temple, he built, and this is alluded to later in the book of Kings, he built under the temple, under the Holy of Holies, he built a room. He built a secret room under the Holy of Holies that you could only get to through secret entrances. 
And the goal, the purpose of this room was, if ever there is war, if ever the temple is threatened, there's a place where you can hide in the Ark of the Covenant. Anyway, they, uh, many, many years later, in the days of King Yoshiahu or Josiah, toward the very, very end of the temple, King Josiah orders a refurbishing of the temple. The temple at this point hadn't been refurbished since the days of King Yoash for close to 200 years. And so he orders a refurbishing of the temple. And there had been some wicked kings that had brought idol worship into the temple, and they'd been, it had been messed up over the years. So they were doing a complete refurbishing of the temple. During this refurbishing of the temple, they found, um, a, they found a hidden Torah. This hidden Torah, according to the way the Talmud describes it, um, was the original Torah written by Moses that would have been either in the ark or next to the ark. Why had it been hidden? It had been hidden because during um, the reign of an earlier king, there was an earlier king called Ahaz, who was on a campaign to destroy the Torah, and part of his campaign was to burn all the Torah scrolls that he could find, and so the Kohanim had hidden the Torah scroll in the temple. During this refurbishing, they found this hidden Torah. They opened the Torah scroll, and they opened it it's at the very, very end of the Torah, in part of the portion of Nitzavim, which speaks how because of your sins you will be driven from the land. King Yoshiyahu hears the Torah being read to him, this, brand, this Torah they had found, this Torah of Moses, the original Torah they had found, and he is scared when he hears this, the first thing they open to, and so he tells them to go to the prophetess Chulda and ask her for what it means, and Chulda responds, indeed, God is upset about all your sins, and God will destroy the temple and banish you from the land, but he will not do it while you are alive, he'll do it after your death. King Yoshiyahu, because you are righteous. And so, um, King Yoshiyahu gets scared, and knowing that the temple is soon going to be destroyed right after his death, he decides to hide the ark. So he orders that the ark, together with the tablets and the Torah scroll that was either in it or next to it, together with the jug of manna and the stick of Aaron that had been next to it, together with also the anointing oil, which was special oil that had been made by Moses that had kept for the 800 years until the days of King Yoshiyahu, and together with the Urim V'tumim. The Urim V'tumim was a parchment that sat inside the breastplate of the high priest that had God's name written on it. And they used to use this parchment. It had a unique God name, not the regular name of God, a unique name of God that nobody knows. It was written on it. And because of this parchment, the breastplate that had stones on it, the different stones would light up when they asked questions, and that only worked because of the parchment with God's name inside. So all of that was hidden in this chamber underneath, this secret chamber that Solomon had built. And so it was all ordered to be hidden. And so, and this is all alluded to, not said explicitly, but alluded to in the, um, uh, at least according to one reading of the book of Kings, this is um, what Isaiah, what Yoshiahu did. And so then, some years after his death, the temple was captured. First it was captured by the Egyptians, who took all its treasures away. Then it was captured by the Babylonians. Then later, eventually, it's destroyed by the Babylonians. They cart everything away to Babylon with them, um, except they don't have the ark. According to another opinion mentioned in the Talmud, um, they actually did take the ark with a, uh, Yoshiel did not hide the ark. 
they did take the ark with them to Babylon, and it got lost in Babylon. So to conclude then, where would the ark then be today? It would depend. Uh, perhaps it ended up in Babylon, and then we have no idea where it is. Um, more likely, the more oft-quoted view is that it was, and it appears from the scripture, it appears to, appears to back this up, that it was actually hidden underneath the temple in a secret hiding place under the temple. Perhaps no one knows which of the two really happened. Nobody at the time was certain um, whether it was hidden or not. Um, perhaps they didn't want people digging. The, there is a Midrash that does tell a story that one time during the second temple, where there was no ark in the second temple, but one time during the second temple, a Kohen noticed that one of the floorboards were a little different. And he opened the floorboard and he found some secret passageways and he started going through and he died. And um, they knew that you're not allowed to go in secret passageways under the temple. You might find the ark that is meant to remain hidden. So um, it may then be hidden under the temple. Yes, Louise? With, with the technology today, you can make the ark. I don't know. They don't, they're not allowed to dig under the temple. That's a political um, issue. Yeah. So um, Rabbi Shlomo Ephraim Lonchitz was a 16th century biblical commentary one of the most famous biblical commentaries, his, the name of his book is called Kli Yakar. Kli Yakar, very famous book on commentary on the Torah. And he explains that the ark in the Holy of Holies, the menorah, which stood in the room in front, the outer room, and the table, the shulchan, that had the special bread on it, represent three Jewish royalties or what we call in Pirkei Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, the three k'tarim, the three crowns. There's three crowns in Judaism. There's nobility, royal house of David, the aristocrats, the nobility, that was represented in the shulchan in the table, which is also sometimes explained to represent financial success. It's also a um, crown, crown of financial success. The second, the menorah, represented the priestly nobility, the priestly royalty. The Kohanim, descendants of Aaron, were born into it. The third one, the ark, represents the Torah. And of course, it had the Torah with the tablets at least in it. So while the nobility and the priesthood, or the wealth and priesthood, is only given to certain people, not everyone gets it. Only some people are Kohanim, only some people are Levites. Some people are from the royal house of David. Some people, if it means wealth, some people get to be wealthy. Not everyone gets it. Not everyone's destined to be wealthy. Um, But Torah is open for everyone. Everyone has access to the Torah. And that is why there were unique rules for the service of the bread. There was unique rules for the service of um, of the menorah. There was no unique rule for the service of the ark. There was no service. It's open access. No one actually went to the Holy of Holies, but everyone has, it's equally, it's equally available for all. And he adds, that's why, the size of the menorah was measured in cubits, and it's exact cubits. How many cubits high it is? I think it was five cubits high in total. Um, the size of the um, table was also mentioned in cubits. Two cubits by one cubit. The size of the ark was half cubits. Two and a half by one and a half. Why half cubits? Because when it comes to study, there's always more to study. We never end our study. So while we no longer have the Ark of the Covenant, or the Aron Habrit, the Aron Habrit was a symbol. 
It was a symbol of our Torah. And while the Ark may be, have disappeared many, many years ago, already in the days of King Yoshiao, the Ark has disappeared. And we may no longer have a temple, the symbol of other things. We may no longer have Jewish nobility, and we no longer have the Kohanim serving in the temple. But the one thing that we do have is access to our Torah. And the Torah, the Talmud says, was given to us in the desert, in the Midbar, in the desert, so that, why was it given at Sinai? If it be given on anyone's property, then they could say it belongs to me. It was given in the desert because it doesn't belong to everyone has equal access to it. And in fact, in Judaism, we believe that every, every single Jew has access to the Torah, has the ability and responsibility to study Torah. And no one individual can say, I know it, you have to listen to me, or you have to study it my way. Everybody has equal access. Today, thanks to books, and it's all available online, everybody has access. You don't need any special books or any special teachers to access the Torah. Anyone can access the Torah, or as the Talmud says, it is there in the open, anyone can come take it. Just go and grab it, and we all have that responsibility. Um, the most important thing that has kept us going for 3,000 years, or well, the only thing that has kept us going for 3,000 years, is our Torah knowledge. Knowing Judaism, knowing Torah. The, what has destroyed us every single time, what has led to assimilation, what has led to us losing our identity as Jews, has been lack of Torah knowledge. And um, surveys show today that city by city, country by country, places where Jews are more knowledgeable, they're more actively Jewish, and more, more strongly identify as Jews. Jews that are less knowledgeable identify less strongly as Jews. Jews that are more knowledgeable pass on Jewish identity to the next generation. Jews that are less knowledgeable don't pass it on. And all the key to Judaism and the Jewish continuity is Torah, is Jewish knowledge. So thankfully we're all here today and we're all able to um, appreciate that and uh, continue studying and 